well, finally, belatedly, whatever, welcome. On behalf of Penn, I am here to say we are glad that you are all here, introducers, readers, listeners. Um, you've probably been hearing or reading about Penn lately. Penn, which is an international organization of poets, playwrights, essayists, editors, novelists. The American branch of Penn has something on the order of 2,000 members. And what it has been in the news for most lately that you've probably seen is the Penn Celebration, a series of readings by superstar big box office writers who are donating their highly paid time to raise money for the Penn Congress, which will be held here in January, which you'll be hearing even more about. But I would like you not to think of Penn as only that kind of glitz and celebrity. The whole reason that those people are donating their time, are out selling tickets and paying lots of money to go to those readings is precisely to support this event because Penn as an organization is concerned about all writers, all writers around the world. And the American Penn Center is particularly concerned about writers in America. It is precisely so that events like this can be held, that we want to keep Penn alive and solvent. And I, I think it's very important for people not to lose sight of that, that, that all the, uh, the glitter, all the fancy costumes and big names and parties and so on are really being done in the service of exactly the people who are not yet published, the people who are not known, and so on. At those readings, the, uh, the, big, the big star invites somebody to do the introducing. We have it a little bit the other way around here tonight. The, the people who are stars or are at least published writers are bringing the unknowns. At those readings, there's been a, a rapid tradition has been developed of introducing the introducers who introduce the people. <laughs> and uh, for example, Norman Mailer will come out and introduce Joyce Carol Oates, who is there to introduce Eudora Welty. And Joyce Carol Oates came out and said, I was standing back there listening to Norman introduce me as the introducer, and I had a fantasy of a whole evening of people <laughs> introducing each other one after the other. And then last night, Gay Talese introduced George Plimpton, who was the introducer of um, Kurt Vonnegut. And uh, I guess it was George Plimpton who said he had a, an image of Gay introducing him, and then him introducing Kurt, and then Kurt coming on and introducing Gay again, and so on and so on. <laughs> At any rate, I am here as the introducer of introducers. Uh, in the interest of saving time, as Pamela was trying to do, there is a sheet printed up that has something of a dossier of each of the people who will be reading. Yeah. Does it? Okay. I'll get some. Just continue, and I'll back. Okay. And also, in the interest of time, we will not belabor the careers of of the actual introducers. But I expect that uh, you all know that Carolyn Forche is a very fine poet, and a journalist of sorts. She is uh, somebody who does a lot of work on behalf of writers and writing column about human rights, about writers in prison and other parts of the world. And she has brought with us Nicholas Samara, who she will now introduce. Nicholas Samaras 
was born in 1954 in Cambridge, England, of Greek-American parents. He came to the United States for the first time in 1967 at the age of 13 and subsequently attended the seminary in preparation for the Greek Orthodox priesthood. This was the Holy Cross Seminary in Boston. He attended for seven years, completing a Master's of Divinity. After that, he lived in Greece for a year, returned to New York, and began studying at Columbia University in the Master of Fine Arts program in poetry. I first encountered his poetry when I was living and teaching in Virginia. I was invited to to select a winning poem for the Academy of American Poets Prize at Columbia. And it happened to be Nicholas's poem, Tracking the Boars, which I'm very happy to say he will be reading this evening. I was very impressed with the eloquence of his narrative voice and the power and strength of it, and uh, never thought I would meet him. When I was first uh, came to New York to teach at Columbia, Nicholas was completing his studies, so I never actually taught him but uh, I, was, I was reminded by him of the tracking the boars, and uh, I was also happy to see that how Mr. Howard Moss had selected it subsequently for publication in The New Yorker. I felt uh, very happy and, and that my judgment had been somehow verified, and, and it has been a pleasure to read Nicholas's work since that time. He, he is growing tremendously as a poet and has completed his first volume of poems, which is tentatively titled Keeping the Flag at Zero. So I hope all of the editors and poetry editors in the audience will remember that title when it comes across your desk. Nicholas Samaras. Good evening. Um, I have two poems to offer tonight, and the first one is entitled Tracking the Boars, and it took place in northern Greece, which was formerly known as Macedonia. You say that they are dangerous. The stout razor of their spines can come to your waist. They'll take your leg off in a stain of red before you can feel the shoot of pain, your mouth open with no cry. They go for the goats when the wind turns rancid. For this you will gather the men, leave the sheep to the women, the village to the priest, not return till what no one speaks of is proven. It is a morning wreathed in the husk of fog, plane trees lurch into vagueness. We meet in the square, unsheath weapons, tighten the girths of wire-haired mules. Photis cradles his World War II rifle, taps the casing, the barrel between his legs, tells a gap-toothed story of how his grandfather was called the turk-eater. Thanos' hair is not yet gray. Rogue boar stalked in his sleep till he woke with the ache of three toes missing from a hunt seventeen winters ago. While dawn burns off the haze, he loads his pack with wooden darts, prefers poison to slow the animal. Though I wear a foreigner's clothes, I am one of the men am herded along. We split into two parties, men with Fotis, men with Thano. The winner take the tusks. They make me bring my camera to record the kill. The climb is rough. The leather of my lungs dusts in, dusts out. Gorse bushes rake my legs. Mule bells are stuffed with rags, their hooves muffled with gunny sack. Strange birds gurgle their calls, filter the air. At dusk we pick up boar tracks, hear wind whistle through the foothills. The village is a wrinkle of white above the darkening sea. 
Our group sets camp, lays stones to char in a circle. The copse is a cowl of cottonwood. The men fog the air with rolled cigarettes, swill retsina, the burn of resin on their tongues. They cackle their stories, spit into the fire. I lie back and listen to the night hiss. The bleach of dawn, three shots. Phothis can tell how far off by the length of the echo. He sniffs the wind, curses our slow luck. We saddle. We have the boar's bridle path, leave the mules, climb to its territory. I stop, suck air through my teeth. The wind bruises my lips. Phothis finds a carved dart in a knotted tree. The poison is fresh, one day. Each man is a trigger, a hair stiffened. Words are left at the campsite. I had wanted to say something of ourselves that survives all this, but knew better, kept quiet. Wild boars know only the language of blood. A boar utters a guttural tongue not unlike German. When we hear it, we will know a sudden dryness in our throats, the dryness the women of Ublesk knew, who carried their babies through a smoky night on fire, stuffing their mouths with rags to stop the wailing. Today, our role plays itself. I hear a rummage of underbrush. What will we do when we face it, the boar's demonic eyes on our barrels, its nostrils flared with the scent of our fear? It is monstrous, half the size of Photis. Bristling its black, its hawks taut. Thano breaks through the brush, and the boar whirls in a grunted, cloven frenzy. We are all cornered. Something stirs in me, and I am caught up. Photis pushes me back, his eyes gone wild, gone hungry, fills the air with blue smoke and thunder. Three miles below us, hoofed kids bleat for their mamas. The sky clears. It is the color of a mother's vein that runs down into the neck of her dress. My face is rough with two days' growth, a small calendar. The mules drag the huge carcass, its boar snout glazing. The glazed eyes stare at nothing. Fotis sings an old resistance song. Air fills with the smell of bread. The women flutter in windows. Thano curries the mules, and I do my part. Focus on Fotis, who strains to lift the massive boar's black head, smiles to his men, the wives, the butcher in his stained uniform. It is a hard trophy, the threat of a beast. We lay the table with linen, carve the corpse, and eat. Um, the second poem took place approximately a month ago on 30th Street. Uh, I have a very good friend whose name is Svetozar, and he is from a place called Bratislava in Czechoslovakia. And the first story I ever heard about him was when he was 13 years old living there, uh, the Russians invaded uh, his province or town. And with his schoolmates, he went out and turned all the, all the village signs, the street signs around, <coughs> and drove the Russians four miles into Austria. So... On this particular night, um, down the street, uh, we had just got out of a restaurant at midnight, and we were walking down the street, and he stopped and recognized this old cathedral that was being torn down, and he said that we have to get into this place. And so we ended up breaking into this old cathedral, and this is a poem that came out of it. In the shell of a city cathedral, with an epigraph. You and I are of uncertain histories. Listen, we have moved into this story without reason. 
There is only the same darkness numbing the New York buildings in dusky silhouettes and anonymity. At such midnights, on such streets, my eyes have always hurried ahead, my footsteps anxious for a lobby's light. But this night is not done with us, and Svetozar is suddenly agitated, paces, stops. He breathes as though he's been gut-punched, makes me look up. The brownstone rides into deep shadow, scarred with boards, sleeping bodies along its alcove. Svetozar turns to me, his face urgent. They're tearing down this cathedral. We have to get inside. I look at him for the first real time. We have got to get inside. What is it that turns at times in each of us? I cannot see a name, a christening, a hinge on this church. Yet I know there are reasons for actions, reasons beyond verbalizing. Some things are truly crazy. Some things are a moral imperative. I see it as important to him, this friend I know truly little about, but often think mad in the finest sense, both of us half-immigrants, half-natives to ourselves, both of us fluent in assimilation. I think of risk, the impracticality of good clothes. Yet our lives at rest have held emptiness in their hands. Strife has filled them. In this black hour, I think of every man who has forgotten his 14th year and decide there is nothing worse than a safe life. I nod my head, almost smile at the way my body turns easily to the narthex, the boarded archway, how we hunch our shoulders together, pry the plywood and squeeze ourselves in. Darkly, we enter the husk of our time. I am blind and cannot move. Svetozar is a black shape next to me, breathing in the dry smell. Slowly, our new world adjusts. Dull shards of moonlight filter in. Men whisper in the face of holiness or terror. I see to the nave a long floor of wreckage, tendrils of wires from walls, dark tubings like anacondas, the twisted filigree. Mindless wreckage, the holy and the profane strewn at my feet. Above us, a staircase descending into air, black-pocked space, a banister with missing rungs, the ornate spindling of the wicks. Beyond that, the disembodied choir loft, the hellish chorus. Mindless, the sight exhausts me. Svetozar swears in as many languages as he knows, stares ahead and whispers to no one, this was a church, this was a church. There is no question or answer. In this place now, all words are a curse or a prayer. I have always been afraid of the unstable, how such a building, such solidity, can fall to man's priorities. When first we met Svetozar and you witnessed my English grammar, my undefined American accent, my Mediterranean laughter, you said, you and I are of uncertain histories. Now tonight, amidst this, when what was this solid falls, perhaps all histories are uncertain. All priorities hold the dry horror of change. I move forward, stepping on raised planks that creak under my weight, stepping over ruin, silenced rites, the corpses of saints. Where is the altar, the four corners to secure the world? What we brought into this cathedral, ourselves, my satchel bought in a Jerusalem bazaar, holding things special to me in this world, one wall outside. Poetry, a journal, photos of a silver-haired man, a raven-maned woman. What in my life has ceased being important? Svetozar says, watch out for nails. We attempt the clearly dangerous, but what else not seen is at risk? Now something unnamed is, is as important to me as it was to him, and I plunge toward what may change us. 
There is one way to the fractured staircase, past the tiny, bull tiny bulldozer with its hard, sleeping teeth. A ten-foot climb to the landing. Svetasar clambers up into shadows, treads heavily. Thick dust spirals down, motes in moonlight. One quick cry. He lumbers above me, cradles his foot, pulls slowly, pulls largeness from himself. A board, a nail, gone dark and wet. I throw my bag up. Svetasar reaches down for my arms. Hoisting up, a splinter takes half my sleeve, plucks my forearm, and for a long second, the skin is white like light. Breathless, I cannot see his leg, and he whispers, keep moving. Scuffing down debris, coughing through dust, I go over the city's progress, the devolution. Ascending, I can believe I am shedding time, unraveling myself. This is not here. This is Bratislava, the darkness of stones falling, the air whistling for death, for boys in shiny buttons who went off to be so quickly wounded. This is New York City. It is pictures of Dresden. It is my beloved Foxton, the Cambridge alcove against London's blitz, the bomb shelters blooming with heather. It is this year ascending to apex. It is the one enduring war. Ascending, these are not my footsteps. Yet whose body is this climbing? Whose body is this next to me limping upward, balanced precariously against pain? Far over the apse, the sky opens to us through half a roof. Our boots scrape away a space to sit. Svetasar leans against black tile, a cinder block retaining wall, exhausted, opens a match and sucks the crippled night and tobacco smoke through his teeth. He grimaces with happiness, exhales the ache of air. Our effort and the dull pain, feeling the heavy pulsing in his fingertips. I run my tongue over my teeth, taste still the earlier meal, the Thai cabbage, its hard little leaves like shrapnel. Think of below, the broken laid-out vagrants who watched us warily from their stoops, their cardboard beds. Above us, a vivid half-moon, the city's rusty glow. This place, so like tonight, a tomb for faith. To the right of us, a blue space and a hundred-foot drop. But the nail through your foot, a sacrament of choice. This is the price of trespass, to come down and away different. Svetasar, I sense this is as far as we may go together. You hold alone the private holiness of your own folded hands. In matchlight, we see his foot's dark puncture, the skin gone shiny and red. Left alone, black lines will ascend the calf, but he draws on his cigarette, exhales, shoe back on, he wobbles upright, gives me a hand up. And another time, Svetasar, your hands have worn the dash of gasoline. The starless nights when tanks rumbled through your home border and there could be no sleep. Your small hands, then, that, that cradled a 13-year-old's chin, and what signs could be turned, what could be learned in a night's resistance. Perhaps tonight, we've climbed to resist ourselves in the complacent country. What of our own histories, shared or alone, is certain? What choices did we assume slowly, like old clothes that wore our shoulders, our soft bruises like flannel? To enter this edifice, this cathedral, was necessary. It was both our choice, and in this we were equal. In the morning, we may find words for what we expected or didn't expect to find, why we came in the first place, why then we chose to remain. We have climbed this far. We have climbed to sturdy, stained stars, climbed to view the ground. I have all my life been climbing to such a clear height, 
a level footing, an icon, and a dusty mirror, all through a palpable darkness, the ginger feeling for where the foot should go next, the leaning of my weight into it. Wind filters through our clothes. For a moment I thought I heard the connected lives of others, human cries, voices that had traveled far north. Now we descend carefully. In the end, Svetazar, we are earthbound and resume our bodies. In the early light, what can be the same? For days I know my hands will not be my own. They hold now the weight of the banister, the stubborn, faithful broad beams, and our eyes, our eyes hold the shells of city cathedrals. Thank you very much. next introducer is one of those people about whom it probably could rightfully be said she needs no introduction. It is Gail Godwin, a remarkably skillful and prolific novelist, who is going to introduce Adrian McDonald. Sorry. I was an instructor at Breadloaf three years ago, and on the first day I was there, I went by the office and picked up my stack of manuscripts and took them up to my room and leafed through them to see which one I was going to read first. And one of the titles of one of the novels was A Man is Dying in My Arms, and I thought, well, that sounds like a good title. I'll read that one first. And, um, it was one of those experiences we writers, teachers, editors, etc., love to have. I mean, I had a real book in front of me, and it was unpublished. And uh, I started reading. She did the rich grandmother scenes good, and then, then she did the um, Chicano terrorists very well, too. And um, I was quite impressed. and told some people about it. Now, this, the, this chapter does not end well, the Breadloaf chapter, because there was a gung-ho New York editor there, and she grabbed the book, gobbled it up, read it overnight, and said, I have to have this. I'm going to take it back to New York. And she made great promises to this young woman, this writer, of a book called A Man is Dying in My Arms. The promises, the promises were not kept, um, but Adrian McDonald is a real writer, and so she did what real writers do. She went home and uh, started another novel. I'm not convinced that, um, that this novel is going to remain in the drawer where Adrian says it is. Uh, I think one day it will be, uh, I think right around here is the M's. It will be right around in there. It will be in paperback also. Tonight, however, Adrian McDonald will be reading from another novel in progress. Please welcome Adrian McDonald. <clears throat> well, I want to read. Uh, some excerpts to you from a book that's been pouring out of me for the last two months, and I'm sorry to say that it draws heavily on some rather sad experiences of my own that I had this summer when I was giving birth to my first child. 
the book is called The Mysterious Child. Uh, the first excerpt is taking place 15 hours into labor. The only thing I think you have to know otherwise is that Dr. Zeller is about 38 years old. The woman resident measured my blood pressure. It's not high at all, she assured me, the edges of her words winged, whispery. Now let's have a listen. With the fetoscope pressed near my navel, she lowered her head and concluded, 140, strong and easy to hear. That was at 9.05 a.m., she later told me. I would never have left the room if I hadn't heard that baby's heartbeat, she said in retrospect. Do you think I'm wrong about not having the fetal heart monitoring strip done, I asked her worriedly. If I was anxious, was that perhaps putting the baby under stress? The woman resident said that she was not at all concerned about anything, but well, yes, just to be thorough, why didn't we go ahead and get the routine 20-minute monitoring strip? I nodded, relented. Calmly and leisurely, she went out to tell the nurse to set up the machine. You think I just got bamboozled, don't you, I said to my husband. He looked indifferent. I was weary of questioning long-term effects sound waves might have on the baby. Why not run one test? It might reassure me. It might ward off more arguments with other medical people later that day. It might relax me to know that the baby was unaffected by the enormous teeth that cut every few minutes into my belly. A black middle-aged nurse entered and strapped a loose belt around my middle. She placed a round rubber head of an instrument against my stomach. It was 9.20 a.m., 15 minutes after the woman resident had heard the vigorous heartbeat. For the first time in all the long last months of pregnancy, there was no sound, nothing. The nurse repositioned the instrument again, again, nothing. Silence. My first thought was, the machine is malfunctioning. They'd better get another one. The doctor just heard it, I pointed out. Where, where did she hear it? I mentioned stirrings I had sensed only moments earlier. The nurse agreed that she had just seen movement. She'd hurried out and got another nurse. Together, they repositioned the round-headed gadget, combed my belly frenziedly with it, nothing. I shut my eyes, and with an inward writhing, I prayed for a rush of thumping to rise from somewhere. The woman resident flew in, her hands aloft, hem of her white coat turning with speed. She jerked her rigid arms too high each time she raised and set the instrument against my womb, searching. Looking frantic, she lifted her beeper and radioed another resident. Richard, could you come here? A boyish-faced resident fell into the room, his features taut with panic. The two residents flurried and rushed. Internal monitor, someone called. Between my legs, screwed into the baby's scalp now, was another bit of high technology. That, too, brought stillness. Overhead lights on, fluorescence. I laid with my back against the bed, my throat shrunken as I lay passively before the emergency incision I was certain was coming. They cut everybody open these days. I found myself praying words from old parochial school days. Oh, my God, I'm heartily sorry. Long-faded prayers leaped through me. I begged God and pleaded with my most intense wishing for a gunfire of baby heartbeats to break out of somewhere from some machine amplifier. Oh God, I beseech, turn this nightmare around. The two residents were younger than I was. To be in the hands of kids at a moment like this, I called from the bed, is Zeller around? Thinking they might reach him in the nearby clinics building and over the phone he could tell them the best thing to do. He's coming, a surprise. The high-risk specialist I had been seeing for months at the prenatal clinic in order to manage my asthma was seldom present at deliveries. Only once per month did he serve a 24-hour stint as staff doctor supervising residents. By chance, this happened to be one of those days. And this is a flashback. During the final two months of my pregnancy, a flicker of concerned remembrance had traveled over Dr. Zeller's face while he examined me. My wife was measuring small like this, he said. His warm palms touching my abdomen tenderly. 
With dismissal in his tone, he added, all it meant was that our baby weighed six pounds, 13 ounces. He prescribed an ultrasound for me. If it revealed problems, the doctors would do a series of tests. They would inject me with hormones and study how well my child endured the fake contractions in my womb. Certain babies did badly under the stress of labor. Some babies, they claimed, grew better in a mother's arms than in her womb. If the doctors believed my son or daughter to be languishing, they would either induce me or quick slit me open and lift the baby out. This all sounded horrifyingly unnatural and bizarre to me, to take a baby out prematurely. I scheduled the ultrasound appointment, agonized a week, then canceled it. I'm not going to argue with you about it, Zeller said brusquely. The next time I saw him, I'm only suggesting what's proper. Well, if you think I'm being stupid, you aren't being stupid, he interrupted quietly. We don't know about effects on the next generation, of the generation after that. In the past, we in the medical profession have done harm without knowing it. I don't think ultrasounds will prove dangerous. If I did, I would never have ordered them for my wife. If I did, I wouldn't suggest them for anybody. I appreciated his grasp of my reluctance. The next occasion, I lay down at the clinic table and lifted my blouse to expose my belly for him. A wildness sparked him. He clutched my middle with such intensity and such suddenness that my hips nearly jumped from the table. You, he cried, are not going to have a small baby. He kept his hands on me with a eureka. I've discovered something here, glee. The shock of his dark blue eyes staring reassuringly into mine. The confidence of his grip. He was not timid about pressing his hard, strong palms around that unseen, unearthly being whose heels circled my navel and sank away in mystery, that little creature whom I worried about hurting myself. There are at least five pounds of baby here, Zeller declared. A few weeks ago, I couldn't tell. Now I can. You are simply all baby. He turned and pivoted around the room, exuberant. What did we do in the days before we had all these fancy tests, he shrugged. About a week and a half before my due date, Zeller decided to record his final assessment on my chart. This little baby, Zeller said thoughtfully, his palms like parentheses around the mound of my womb, is about six and a half pounds. Now, that's my clinical opinion. I tried not to notice the loving, gushy rearrangements of his hands as they framed the baby. There was a sentimental tilt to the doctor's head that day, not because he liked me in particular, but because I was a woman in her 38th week, ready to expel her infant, and that was the sort of sweet parting blessing Zeller felt an obstetrician should give. It was so much the sort of fatherly, proprietary adoration I'd always longed for from my husband during all those months of gestation, a breathing of affection over the full moon of my belly, that I dared not tell, let myself think about it. The man had hundreds of patients, and he probably offered those squeezes of love to the ripe wombs of every one. Still, I longed to be special to the doctor somehow. How many sonometers did your wife measure at the end, I asked, to revive my connection with her. I don't remember. I wasn't her doctor. How tall are you? Wait, stand up. I hopped off the examination table. My maternity shift, striped in soft turquoise pastels, fell demurely down. The hem touched my knees. A look of fondness came into his face. He walked over and stood close to me, his mustache even with the crown of my head. Yes, he said. She's about your height, maybe an inch shorter, and thin like you. He backed away. Now you at least look pregnant. My wife didn't. People would say to her, you're due when? It disturbed her. She wondered, is this kid the size of a walnut or what? That's why I ordered the, the ultrasound, to reassure her. In bidding me good, that's how ma people make me feel, I said, inadequate. In bidding me goodbye that day, he reminded me that I might go into labor at any time. Maybe we'll see you at next week's appointment. Maybe we won't, he said in a sweet tone. I did return one last time in the 39th week. Zeller was chipper. 
I want to see this baby, he said cheerfully while examining me. Probably he was curious to see how precisely he had gauged the weight just by his hands. Be sure to tell the people in the nursery to point this baby out to me. I was amused and gratified by his interest. At the hustle-bustle health mill, my child would be a small spectacle in the overworked specialist's day. His face was iced over with shock the following Monday when he was summoned into the labor cell and saw me lying there. I've been a fool, I said wearily. He wore a beautiful peach-colored shirt. In his white coat, he had hurried so fast, his woven tie had flown over one shoulder. Didn't we have the test strip done on the monitor, he asked the two residents, his words fading. By then, the ultrasound machine had been wheeled in. The three physicians hovered around it and blocked my view of the screen's amorphous gray shadows. Do you see any sign of cardiac motion at all, someone asked. Hush, hush. I was afraid to see what they could see on that screen. I was convinced that the picture exposed a nightmarish revelation of what was inside me, a disintegration, malformation, a disconnection of limbs. No one said anything. No one had to. I turned my head to my husband, who had been shunted to a corner. I'm sorry, Jeremy, I said in a steady tone. I really love you. Zeller's authority came forward. I am not doing an emergency cesarean, he said in a hard whisper, if there's no sign of cardiac life. Zeller cried then, a wince of tears. The woman resident put her fist to her cheeks and the back of her white coat jerked brokenly. The other doctor wept too. I think we should get out and let them have a few minutes alone together, Zeller declared with dignity. I think she should go on and deliver vaginally and we should proceed with the labor. Beside the residents, he had a manly directive air, the unhesitating assurance of a father about him. He was not, this spoken in a horrified whisper, about to deliver a brain-damaged child. The labor goes on for ten more hours after that. Episiotomy, the woman resident asked Zeller, for she was the apprentice, he the master overseer. I raised myself to a half-sitting position and thrust my arms towards him in surrender. Do whatever you have to do, I cried and fell back against the table. A small one, he said. Push with the next contraction, they instructed. Two more contractions, three gruesome pushes with each, and they suctioned it forward, the baby's head. I sensed the greatest bulk, the head emerging. Then the slippery working and turning of the rest of the baby's body being born. There was no mirror, only a reflector light overhead which showed nothing. I saw nothing except the doctor's faces, serious, grave, and I wondered what deformity they might be seeing. It's a boy, the woman resident said tonelessly. I knew it would be a boy, Jeremy said, and so had I. He has your mouth, Jeremy said, better able to view because he was standing beside me. They took the baby over to a counter and ministered to him briefly. Oh, the delay, the impatience I felt waiting to see him. Swaddled in a white blanket, he was carried over. There he is, five fingers, five toes, said the nurse. Our son was perfectly formed. The little bundle of him, seen in profile, was passed towards me over my legs. He had a frozen perfection of features, like a child asleep. His nose was as small as a fingertip, round and sweetly shaped, and it was strangely whiter than the blush of his face, as if ice had touched it. He was still warm from having been so recently in my body. Comfortably, I drew him against my chest. His mouth was mine, the, long, the upper lip a long bow that slanted downward. His lips were stained red-violet like my husband's. I spoke of each feature in the odd, wondrous tones of any new mother looking upon her child's face for the first time, except that I referred to him in past tense. Oh, he was sweet, I said. Look how sweet he was. His hair was curly, wasn't it? The thin hair lay in long squiggles against his scalp, like my father's, my sister's. Curly or wavy, my husband agreed. Dark hair. No, I think light, I said. Maybe brown. There might have been a reddish cast to it. On the baby's scalp was one faint line of dried blood. Can we hold him for a while, I asked the nurse. Sure, you can keep him as long as you like. I'll take a picture of him if you want it. 
As Dr. Zeller was exiting through a side door, I called to him sadly, seeing myself and my folly through his eyes. What a foolish woman. I guess I, see, I learned my lessons the hard way. Okay, I'll skip. And now they're back in the labor chamber looking at the baby, the husband and wife. The nurse had said he was a long baby, 21 inches, 6 pounds, 13 ounces. He weighed to the ounce exactly what Dr. Zeller's daughter had. His calves, how tapered they were, how muscular they were, just from exercising in my womb. During the last weeks, in the mornings, for an hour, I had lain in a crescent shape on the bed and counted with pencil nicks on paper the stirrings from my womb. Sixty movements, three times as active as the average healthy baby. That was proof, Dr. Zeller had said, that my child was thriving. The nipples were pale and tiny as snaps. So this is what a little boy's uncircumcised penis looks like, I said tenderly. Jeremy smiled. It lay between the baby's legs like a sliver, a tiny white fish. I touched it delicately and imagined how I would have cleaned it and groomed him and cared for him, my son. An Oedipal affection reared up in me, how I would have loved him and probably been reluctant to pass him along to a wife someday. The nurse came in. If you want me to take him now, I will, she offered. If you need more time. No, I said, you can take him. I did not want to watch him grow increasingly icy. Say goodbye then, she said gently. Goodbye, little Colin. So Jeremy must have told the nurse the name. Goodbye, Colin, I said, using the name for the first time. As soon as I spoke it, he seemed more of a person than he had been, the loss more awful and deep. He was my Colin, my dream son. Now he would never be real. I had never heard his voice or cry. I would never know what he might have been. As for him, the only existence he had known was life inside my womb. I would have liked to have known the color of his eyes, but the lids were so peacefully sealed I did not want to disturb him. Goodbye, Colin. For the first time, as I kissed his brow, elongated from birth, I wept. I put my lips to his chest, touched his soft skin with my fingers, kissed his crown in several places. Jeremy took him in his arms for a farewell, then set the infant down next to me. The nurse put her fist to her face and cried. She turned away. I wanted to touch him and touch him. This was the only time anyone would mother him. I put my lips carefully against his red-violet ones, and I kissed my own mouth goodbye. We saw how much we would have loved him. We wanted to keep him forever, but there was no point to it. His tiny fingers were coiled and stiff, growing tauter. His head flopped back, the weight of it too much for his small, lifeless body to hold. Soon his little fists would be bald and unyielding as stones. His flesh was strangely colored cold. Okay, and this is the last part I'm going to read from the postpartum appointment. This is the end of the scene, or the middle of the scene. So, the doctor said in conclusion, both of us were on our feet. In his manly blue blazer, he stopped and turned to me as we were crossing the carpet to exit the room. You're doing well. You look great. His eyes dropped to my midriff, and he held his hands apart, about as wide as my hips, in a kind of frankly male appreciation. He took another step towards the door. Just before opening it, he faltered and turned to me again. His head fell to one side, and he seemed to buck in frustration at all that had not been broached. Is there anything you want to say to me, he said desperately. My chest went concave with helplessness, and I raised my right arm towards him in a limp salute. I just want to give you a hug, I admitted. Eagerly he bent, his arms opening to catch my waist as he pulled me against him. In tearless whispers, I found myself crying out against his ear. You were so wonderful and so warm. My arms reached up and spilled over his shoulders, casting a loose wreath of love around him. For an instant, he drew himself away. You're going to make me cry, he warned. Behind his glasses, his thick lashes batted together, and he reminded me, just during those blinks, of a little boy of about four who stood bashful at his mother's knee, knees, allowing himself to be hugged. The whole thing was such a nightmare, and you were so good through all of it. My face wrestled in remembrance, and my body washed up against him, 
His is another, in another soft splurge of feeling. Sounds of relief came from him. This surprised me. Had he thought I would hate him, blame him? How could he not have known how impressive he had been? In his dark blue coat, he was taller than I. He murmured into the earrings tangled in my hair. You just have to trust us. I was amazed that he was responding like this. Several weeks earlier, he would not have known my name without a glance at my chart. Now it was as if we had lost a baby together. He backed me up, a little foxtrot, held me and held me. My, hip, my hips were slid flush against him. His genitals could be felt right through my dress. I had never flown against a man other than my husband with so much emotion before. But it was not just me, it was him too. This astonished me. His hands at my waist, mine around his neck, his head leaning sideways with feeling. We had fallen together naturally as though we'd been married for years. There was something outrageous in how long the man was holding me, embracing me. Five yards beyond the closed door, his nurse busied herself at her station. Down the short corridor, a lobby full of patients waited. It was out of line for any doctor to be this physical with a patient. He had never been flirtatious with me before. Affectionate, yes. Caring, yes. And emotional. But he was that way with everyone. He touches and then he runs. I had laughed to my friend Sally. She bounced back. I'd run after him. Always before, he had guarded himself. How often did he indulge like this? How often did he give a calculated pivot at the door and ask his postpartum ladies, is there anything you want to say? Then wait for them to, and then wait for them to swing themselves against his chest in those mad uprushes of gratitude. This was a safe moment, after all. The one occasion he saw them slender and beautiful. The pause before he opened the door and was neatly, sweetly rid of them. Between him and me, though, was the rare thing, a dead baby. His body was a soft exhale against mine, and in holding one another there was sadness, forgiveness, desire, compassion, essential relief, the longing to absolve his loss in mine and forget the baby who had died. You see, you see, the doctor's body said to me, I didn't destroy the dark, mysterious cave of your womanhood. You still have the lure, the capacity to draw a man into you. You could lure me. I'm not an inept doctor. You need me so badly now. You are half in love with me. The compassion I feel for you, his hugging seemed to say. The sorrow I gave you, not hovering close enough, not being clairvoyant, being a tad casual, never expecting disaster, not knowing. How sorry you are that you resisted me, my sound waves, my risky godlike screens that could have plumbed and tracked your baby's heart-like movements along the ocean floor where no light has ever reached. Next time, you are mine. I feel it in your whispers and your arched spine. You tell it. You tell me it with your halter dress, your bare shoulders, narrow as a little girl's. Next time, you'll fall back against the table and cry, do whatever you have to do, and I will save your baby. In the soft, warm fusion of embraces that went on too long, the doctor and I made our peace. There was nothing overtly carnal in the hugging. We were careful not to touch each other that way. If it continued much after this, however, it could only slide in one direction. We both knew it. If it went on, we'd soon be on the carpet, and I'd be letting him use his own brand of sperm on me. And your husband, the doctor said at last, as if to remind himself, gulping, pulling back. Is he helping you? <laughs> Taping the chain, changing the tape. <laughs> Taping the on again. I think this may be a good moment to say something else that's been on my mind, which is a very large thank you to the Endicott Bookshop. And uh, in that regard, a word about 
how important this kind of bookstore is to all of us. It's something that I probably you all, because you're here, don't need to hear it. But I think that one has to take whatever opportunities one can find to, to remind each other that without bookstores like this, and there are fewer and fewer of them, we all become somewhat extraneous to, to the process. Writers, readers, editors, whatever. Um, and I, I urge you all to support this and whatever other good, strong, independent bookstores you have in your neighborhoods or wherever you can go to find them. <coughs> the next introducer is Jaime Manrique, a novelist, most recently of a book called Colombian Gold. He is going to introduce Alexander Lobrano. What I did was I wrote a um, few notes about uh, Alexander's uh, uh, novel, um, uh, Natural Selection, and uh, which he just finished. And um, I would like to mention two aspects of Alexander Lobrano's fiction that I admire. First, there is the supple way in which he writes prose. His handling of descriptive narration makes me think of a film director tracking gracefully atop a gliding camera. He achieves this effect with a style that is terse yet vivid because he chooses words with care, aware of their uniqueness. <coughs> I admire the way he introduces characters. With just a few details, he immediately establishes rapport among them, amongst them, managing to make them familiar to each other and to ourselves. Alexander writes about poised individuals trapped in distressing situations, exposing the irrationality beneath their gentility so that we see into their very souls. Although he's a cool humorist with a fine sense of the absurd, he does not sacrifice empathy to satire so that even when we reject what his people have in their minds, we're curious about the contents of their hearts. Alexander has just finished his first novel, Natural Selection. That these qualities I've mentioned are found in abundance in a first novel is something to be celebrated. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jaime. And thank you all for coming tonight. <clears throat> the excursion deck was crowded. He surveyed the rows of benches, and in the front, on the far right, he saw an empty place next to an old woman and two little boys. As he lifted his suitcase to pass into his seat, the old woman admonished the boys, sit still and let the man through. Arthur nodded and smiled. Thank you very much, he said and brushed a cigarette butt off the seat before putting his bag under the bench. Staring at the cylindrical gray oil tanks on shore, he was surprised to see how quickly the boat was moving. A tanker, long, flat, heavy in the water, slid past the ferry. Looking up at the highway that spanned the harbor, he had the uneasy sensation of having fallen from a great height. The sun burned a white spot in the overcast sky, and it was very hot. Except for the blocky summit of a bank building with a time temperature sign, the skyline was broken only by tall, slender factory chimneys. 
Oh no, Freddy, <clears throat> don't go in there, that's not nice. The old woman had a rattle in her voice that reminded him of his grandmother. He turned and looked at her. She wore a broad-brimmed straw hat that was tied under her chin with a yellow scarf. Her large bosom was upholstered in a soft floral print. She looked from the child on one side of her to the child on the other, blinking often, with an expression of good-natured agitation. The little boys had fuzzy blonde hair, so fine that it fluttered around like goose down. They were peeling children, well-kept, wearing madras shorts, white socks, and sandals with buckles. The child closest to Arthur, the one wearing a light blue shirt, whom the old woman had addressed as Freddy, picked up her wicker pocketbook, put it in his lap, and started to sort through its contents. Freddy, please, put that down, right now. The boy removed his hand from the bag and opened his fist so that the quarter he'd taken from her change purse lay in the middle of his palm. Can I have this, he said and cocked his head. Arthur chuckled. The child was obviously intelligent. Only if you promise to sit still. I will. All right, then put it in your pocket so that it doesn't get lost, the old woman said, and then she took the purse out of her bag and digging around in the coins for a minute, she found another quarter and presented it to the quiet quiet child in the maroon shirt on her other side. Stephen, this is for you, she said, and placed the coin carefully in his hand. Immediately he made a fist with the coin inside of it. Thank you, he said in a tiny voice. The old woman smiled. You're quite welcome, dear. She kissed the top of his head and brushed something off his shoulder. The generous expression on her face was qualified only by the pink cleft between her brows. The extra vigilance that children required on a boat was exhausting her. Freddy tossed his coin up in the air, catching it as it fell into his cupped hands. Grandma, watch this. He threw the coin crookedly, higher than he had before. It fell on the floor and shot sideways under Arthur's seat. He bent over, the blood rushing to his head, and retrieved the coin. When he sat up, his head spun for a few seconds. Here you are, young man he said, and handed Freddy the coin. Freddy stared at him shyly before taking it back. <clears throat> the old woman watched the transaction with polite amusement. Thank you very much, she said to Arthur. They're nice children. Well, yes, they are. Freddy observed their conversation intently. We've had fun, haven't we? The old woman spoke to him. He nodded, and she continued. The boys have been with me while their parents were away on vacation. I see, Arthur said. Freddy was looking at him with a curious, half-glowering expression. What did you do with your grandmother? Arthur leaned forward, grinning. You look like my father, the boy announced sullenly. Freddy, tell him what we've done this week. For a minute, the child was silent. <clears throat> we went to Twain House in the Anthem. Mark Twain's house in the Wadsworth Athenaeum, the old woman corrected him. Oh, you were in Hartford, Arthur said to the boy. Yes, that's where I live, said the old woman. A very pleasant city, Arthur added, and then he spoke to the boy again. Do you know what they call Hartford, where your grandmother lives? Freddy shook his head. The insurance capital of America. <laughs> the old woman grinned. Yes, that's quite right. Of course, your grandfather worked for an insurance company. That's my business, too. Twenty-five years, Arthur said eagerly. Oh, that's nice, the old woman. <clears throat> the old woman seemed at once relaxed, as, an, as though an understanding had occurred between them. 
For some time they were silent, content in their camaraderie. Then the quiet boy spoke. Grandmother, how long is it till we get there? She leaned sideways. What is it, dear? How much longer till we get there? Well, let's see. She raised her arm. A small circle of diamonds set in gold was embedded in her wrist. Squinting at the tiny watch face, she gave a start. It's almost one o'clock. She rummaged in her purse for a minute, and then she turned to Arthur. Clearing her throat, she spoke. Excuse me, I wonder if I could ask you a favor. My suitcase is under the seat, and I must get something. I was certain I'd put them in my bag, but I didn't. I'm afraid my back isn't up to it. Of course, Arthur said while she was still talking, and he stood and stooped over. One of the boys who works on the boat brought it upstairs for me, and I've been wondering since how I'd get it ashore. Freddie's legs dangled over the seat in front of the case, a worn leather overnight bag. All right, young man, move over just a bit so that I can get your grandmother's bag out. Freddie shook his head. Freddie, come now, move over, right now. The old woman was becoming cross, and her cheeks were flushed. Grudgingly, the little boy stood up. Arthur heaved the bag up onto the seat. Thanks so much, the old woman said, and fit a little key into the shiny brass lock, fumbling for a minute before the catch released. When she opened the bag, Arthur saw the large crushed cups of a brassiere pressed into a filmy peach-colored garment under it. He looked away, but the humidity and intense heat in the dead air absorbed the floral scent that rose from the folded clothing, bidding a momentary intimacy that was harrowing. Many years before, he'd walked in on his mother's bath, stunned by the horror of his invasion, until the steam, smelling similarly of talc and roses, had bitten into his nostrils, and he'd fled. The old woman stood and slid her hand under the clothing, withdrawing an amber prescription vial. Here they are, she said, and dropped the lid of the bag. Now, let's see, I need something to take these with, she said to herself, and Arthur wondered if she wasn't a bit dotty. I'm thirsty, said Stephen. So am I. I want a Coke. Freddie stood in front of her with his arms folded. Now, hold your horses. We'll have something. Freddie, you stay here and behave yourself. We'll bring you a Coke. As soon as his grandmother and brother had left, Freddie opened the suitcase, which the old woman had left unlocked. Arthur was watching a sailboat when he heard a hissing. He turned and saw the little boy with a can of hairspray. Why don't you put that back in your grandmother's bag, he said. The boy pressed the button on the top of the can again, and a thick, choking mist wafted over Arthur. Now stop it. That isn't nice, he said. The little boy looked at him for a minute with an expression of such disdain that he wondered if he wasn't misinterpreting the child's small features. It seemed impossible that a child could look so hard and hostile. There was no reason for him to be so antagonized by a mild reprimand. The boy held up the can again and spread it at Arthur's shoulder. Put that away this minute, he said in a low voice, and the expression on the boy's face changed. He looked calmer, almost relieved. He opened the suitcase again, and Arthur peered inside. A brush with matted combings of hair and its black bristles lay next to the brassiere. The fine silvery hair startled him. They looked more animal than human. The boy lifted a layer of clothing and rested the can on its side. Then, to Arthur's horror, he picked up a small quilted satin pouch. Arthur shook his head and felt vaguely annoyed with the old woman for leaving him with her recalcitrant child.
Please put that back where you found it, he said. The boy didn't look up, but untied the thin white ribbon that held the bag closed. Arthur watched anxiously. Your grandmother is going to be very unhappy with you when I tell her that you misbehaved. I'm certain that she'll tell your father. The boy paid no attention and continued to investigate the pouch. He sat on the edge of the bench, on the other side of the suitcase from Arthur, and emptied its contents into his lap. There were two white enamel bracelets, a pair of earrings that were shaped like small flowers made from pieces of mother of pearl set in silver with a matching pin and a string of pearls. Arthur flinched when he saw the pearls. It was a long rope, obviously valuable, with a clasp of gold set with little blue stones. The boy held the pearls in his fist and stared at Arthur, who felt a bead of sweat descending from his sideburn. Then he knew that the child was waiting to defy him. He looked at the little boy again, and their eyes met. Then the boy stood up and walked over to the railing. He wasn't tall enough to lean against the top bar, so he kneeled and hung over the lower one. Arthur was terrified. Come back here this instant. He advanced a step. The boy grinned at him. Right now, I'm warning you, I'm going to count to fuck you, the boy said. And Arthur lunged at him, gra grabbing him by the shoulders and tearing him from the railing. The moment that Arthur touched him, the child dropped the pearls. Arthur gasped when he saw the lustrous beads suspended in front of him for a second, and then plummeting. His eyes could not follow their fall, and staring down at the water, he saw only the frothy cut of the boat's prow. <coughs> Stop it! Don't! You're hurting me! The boy whined, but Arthur could not let go. In his grip, he felt the bones inside of the boy's shoulder, and then, suddenly, he slapped the boy's buttocks with such force that the small body jerked forward, head thrown back, almost like a doll. Then the child screamed. Arthur's hand had already repeated the first half of the arc, the child sobbing in inspiration. When shocked, he realized that other people were watching and released the boy. Still weeping, the child immediately set about gathering up the jewelry and putting it back in the pouch. That was a terrible thing to do. You're in very bad trouble now, and no doubt about it. Still, he did not react, and the blank expression and complete indifference to what happened sustained Arthur's rage. And don't think she won't notice they're gone. She will, and you'll be sorry. You'll see. You'll have to tell the truth. To his astonishment, the boy turned and smiled at him. The miniature expression was so false and forceful that Arthur shook. No, don't think you'll get away with this. You won't he said, and turned away, shaking. He had to calm down. He gazed at the brightly colored spinnakers on the flinty surface of the sand, but they gave him no pleasure. It wasn't his fault, but he wanted no part of the trouble that would come, and there was no solution to what had happened. The pearls were gone. And then, beyond his anxiety about the loss, was the horror he felt at having struck the child. The sense of what he'd done emerged, and it chilled him. He'd actually hit a strange child in public. Ah, uh, here we are. Be careful, Stephen. Don't spill. He turned around. It was the old woman. She stood in front of the boys, carefully holding two paper cups with plastic caps. Here, Fetty, take this, and don't spill. The little boy took the cup of soda and rested it between his knees, pulling the paper off the straw and leaning forward. He pushed 
It threw the hole in the cap and consumed the drink quickly so that his cheeks were sucked in. Thank you very much, the old woman said to Arthur and nodded at Freddy. No problem at all, Arthur said, <laughs> smiled. They were coming into Port Jefferson. He could see the power plant and the big pile of coal next to it. The familiar view brought, some, brought him some relief. In 20 minutes, he'd be on his way to Sand Point. A voice crackled over the PA system. Would all drivers please return to their vehicles? The, announce pro the announcement provided an excuse to leave them. I guess I'd better get downstairs, he said, and stood up. Oh, well, it's been very nice to talk with you, the old woman said. He pulled his bag out from under the bench. Have a nice visit. Goodbye, boys, he said, and lifted the bag. Freddy grinned at him, and he looked away. Goodbye, he said once more, and walked down the aisle. Downstairs, the crowd had already gathered at the head of the stairs that led down to the hold where the cars were parked. Arthur stood to one side and looked at the dock. Excuse me, sir. He turned around. A teenage deckhand, one of the boys who directed traffic on and off the boat, was standing behind him. Yes. Could you come upstairs for a minute? What for, he said, and then he saw the old woman standing a few feet away. He smiled at her, and she looked down. The teenager was embarrassed. I'd appreciate it if you'd just come upstairs for a second. What's this about, Arthur said indignantly. Well, the captain will tell you. Come with me, please. Arthur shook his head. I'm sorry, people are meeting me. I'll have to get the police if you don't cooperate. The police? What for? Just tell me what's going on here. A portly, white-haired man in a blue cap and another teenager approached them. Come with me, please, the older man said. I'm sorry, but would you please tell me what this is about? <coughs> Look, buddy, the old lady over there says that you went through her bag while she was downstairs getting a drink. That's absurd. Look, I didn't touch her bag. It was her grandson who, okay, come on, you can tell me upstairs. There's been a mistake. This is ridiculous. <laughs> I didn't go near her things, Arthur said, and then he saw that everyone was watching them. fiction writer of note, most recently of a collection of stories called The Bus of Dreams, will introduce Mitch Berman. Um, I was working for about a year and a half on a special issue of the Anya Review uh, dedicated to literature and politics, which is going to be published in January. And I asked my friend Russell Banks if he knew any young writers, because we wanted to excuse me, I have a cold, <clears throat> because we wanted to include someone, and he suggested Mitchell Berman. Uh, I read Mitch's novel, 100 pages of a time capsule, last February, and I thought it was really quite wonderful, and when Pamela set up this evening, I wanted Mitch to read to you from it. <clears throat> His novel, Time Capsule, is the story of a modern-day Huck Finn named Max, who is playing alto sax, in a recording studio in New Jersey when the bomb drops and life as we know it ends. Uh, Max then tries to return home to Manhattan 
which he manages to do uh, and finds that there's nothing left. And then he sets upon a journey in search of life. Uh, what, what struck me the most, uh, I believe that Mitch does not play the alto sax, um, but what struck me most about the novel was the incredible jazz-like energy of the prose juxtaposed to the incredible devastation of World War III. And it was that mixing of jazz and music with devastation that somehow made the novel for me a, a work of great hope. Um, he's going to read the section in which Max meets his first human being. <clears throat> Mitch Berman is 29 years old. He's lived in Los Angeles <clears throat> and for the last five years in New York. He went to the University of California at Berkeley and ha almost has an MFA from Columbia. The novel Time Capsule <clears throat> will be excerpted in the special issue of the Anya Review called Burning Issues, which will be out in January. Thank you. naturally warm early summer night with a warm brown moon. There I am, my pupils and my horn bright flickering points of red firelight. A fire, not because I'm cold, but because without it I think I see eyes in the darkness, plenty of them. So there's music in Harrisburg. It started with Cherokee, medleyed into Parker's mood, a strong gusty summertime. And I burn, I yowl, I moan, squeak, and howl with the voice of 10,000 ghosts of jazz. I got rhythm and I got Lester, I got Pepper and I got Rollins and Hodges and Miles. Lockjaw. There's Bird, I think, and the Coda's Coltrane. The front half of me is dripping fat beads of sweat, my back in cool darkness. Now I've lost the eyes beyond the circle of light. Or I've converted them to smiling audience eyes. And why not? I'm taking a bow. Thanks. Thank you very much. Back in the reel, in the dry rocks and bushes, two meat hands are actually hitting each other. A voice sings out, a full voice that comes from a live voice box. Hey, man, do you know strangers in the night? Only my jaw moves. You... Yeah, I mean it. Twigs rustle impatiently. Why say what you don't mean anymore? Play strangers in the night. I am thinking of my journey. But thinking is too organized a word. My journey is rushing through me. Water, crows, infections. I've crossed one entire state on my own two feet. Two states on one foot. And here, standing right in front of me, or about to be standing right in front of me, is my first, my very first human being since the sky fell in. I am thinking about him. Believe me, I'm thinking about him. And what he wants is that I play him the worst song in the entire world. <laughs> Who are you? These are the words I wrap my mouth around, but shock has sent the blood rushing, shouting through my head. I'm frozen in the glow of the fire like a rabbit caught in headlights. Playing the saxophone is just one of a thousand things I couldn't do to save my life. A black man, about 50, skinny and straight, both above and below the waist, but hinged forward at it, steps now into my clearing, brandishing a long face with a long, long jaw. A yellow-brown face, thrust out, catching so much firelight it seems to give some off, dangling on that leaning pole of a body like a lantern. He is unarmed. He is not tall. He's talking, but the solid drumming pulse in my ears blankets his words. Threatening me, telling me his name, 
I force a hopeful smile, but there's a randomness to my grin, an uncertainty that flickers across the tense air to his features. My ears pop, and suddenly I hear him. Man, I'm hungry. You got some food for me? Wolf. The name is in my head. He's Wolf. I don't know why. The outrageousness of telling me he's hungry makes me smile, really smile. His hands open as if explanations, like white doves from a, ma a magician's, will issue from them. I haven't eaten, he begins, in... His eyes close and his fingers scratch the air, figuring, calculating, computing. Pluses, minuses, sines, tangents, differential equations, clawing out an invisible history of mathematics from first grade to PhD, from Euclid to Einstein, adding millennia to eternities and multiplying eons by centuries until he exhales triumphantly and his eyeballs snap jing back into view like the total into the window of a cash register. I haven't eaten, he declares at last, in one and a half days. Now I can't hold it in. He doesn't move his head, regarding me only with his eyes, as my adrenaline straitjacket opens and I come spilling out of it, drowning in my own laughter, speechless, limited to gesture. I lay a greeting hand on his shoulder that soon is clutching for support because I'm falling, laughed limp. I ask if you got any food. He sniffs the air above my crumpled form, still peeping at me out of the bottoms of his eyes, and steps back to scan me critically. Didn't your mama teach you to answer a direct question? There are no mamas anymore, Wolf. There are always mamas, he says. That's the trick of them. <laughs> when I raise myself to my haunches and reach into my pockets, his eyebrows lift with me, expectantly, inspectingly. But as I pull out and hold out to him two handfuls of cockroaches, Wolf reels, his head shaking in contradiction and nausea. He repeats the key word, food, once for emphasis, food, twice for deafness, food, three times for completion and exasperation and disbelief, and because cockroaches are, goddammit, not something to put in your mouth. Don't you... My fingers are withering in his horror, dry black insects slipping through. Eat them? Man, the pause is designed to remind me what species I belong to. So far, I've stood there deaf and then dumb, called him a name that isn't his, laughed like a loon, collapsed, given him cockroaches to eat, asked a foolish question, and got a foolish answer. You better come with me, says Wolf. And he's leading me out of the clearing. I'm stepping on sharp stones, turning my ankle in holes, crunching gravel. We pick across brush and pavement, slowly, because it's smoggy dark, moonless. It's become smoggy dark, moonless. Wolf is stumbling all over the place, but never quite falling. Eat roaches, huh, he says, forcing a calm voice through several glances full of hysteria. You ain't crazy? No, I don't think so. No, he is slow to agree, but close, damn close. Cockroaches, well. We walk in silence for several minutes. Wolf's hair, compact on top, bushes out at the sides as if he's been wearing a cap. The outline of his head resembles a mushroom cloud. It's hair as it grows in from scratch. I run my fingers through my own. The same, short on top, long around it, and none comes out in my hand. I clear my throat shrilly and my voice lurches out. What did you do? I have to repeat the question before his dreamy voice answers. Do? For a living. He frowns into the sheer distance of the subject. An engineer, civil engineer. Streets and sidewalks, that kind of thing? Sewers and unemployed for the last nine years, that kind of thing. Later... Much later, as we approach the first of his empty traps, he asks, How come you call me Wolf? You just... I'm not sure. Do you mind? Wolf, he says. Wolf, weighing it. No, I like it. It's right. Wolf, the night prowler. He frames an imaginary marquee, his hands T-squares. 
Wolf's rat traps are cages made entirely of coarse wire mesh, bent into boxes, broken into squares for the cage doors, separated into single gauge for the door hinges. Wired down in each is a flick of some tissue, a rat eye or brain or something equally unsuited to Wolf's palate. The doors hang down from the cage ceilings, permitting entry, but not exit, unless the rats figure out that they must pull the door instead of pushing as they did to enter. We come across six, seven empty cages, only two of them still baited. The ones who get away, he says, are too little to eat, no meat and too many G-rays. Sour grapes, but I think of my own diet and feel suddenly useless beside this display of purpose. We climb down an open manhole to what Wolf calls the main line, because this is where the fat rats live. Sightless, I misjudge the bottom rung and crash to the floor. It isn't wet. Sorry, says his voice, and there is cigarette lighter light. I am nose to nose with a rat the size of my face, whiskers twitching as it decides if I am good enough to eat, the wire outlines of its cage congealing around it as my eyes focus. I sit up, and Wolf is grinning down, blue butane lighter in hand. Past him are eight empty cages and two more crammed length and breadth with live rat meat. It's Thanksgiving on the main line, Wolf cackles. He strings up the wiggling cages from a length of wire, wrapping the excess several times around his hand. Grizzled wolf, face speckled with a graying beard, prey dangling from a fist, looks like a fur trapper heading home. Home is a hollowed-out 7-Eleven. Two and a half walls are intact, and a piece of ceiling is posed for the instant when it can create the most possible damage by falling. I move my good left leg out of range. Nah, and wolf waves a, waves a palm upwards. Don't worry, I did a structural analysis. It's safe. I don't know about you, he says, occupied with twigs and matches but I've survived as long as I have by outsmarting inanimate objects. In the quiet night, there is a low whistling noise. It is coming from the rats, frantic, crowding away from the licking fire. One starts chattering his teeth, a mechanical noise quickly taken up by the others, frightening despite their helplessness, or because of it. I can't stand when they start in with the teeth, Wolf says, too loudly. I've already got the mouthpiece on the sex. Yeah, why don't you make yourself useful and play some? I do the only food song I can remember, all you little rookies. Wolf dangles the wire cages over the flame, squeezing a torrent of squeals out of the rats that I cover with some of my own. When it is quiet again, there is mainly the smell of burning hair. Wolf opens cages and jams a stick, mouth to bowel, through the rats. As he rotates the carcasses over the flame, another smell rises up, meat cooking. It is a good smell, even mixed with hair, and I have to stop playing and open the spit valve on my horn. My instrument and I stand drooling on the smoke-marked linoleum. Wolf slides a broiled rat off the stick. Grease drips. I get out my pocket knife, and Wolf halts at the sight. A Swiss army knife? He turns it in his hands. See, a good knife is one of the few modern conveniences you don't find in a 7-Eleven. And he pulls out from behind him a bottle of Lee and Perrin's Worcestershire sauce, one of Heinz ketchup, and another of Louisiana red Tabasco. This is civilized, says Wolf taking up my knife and skinning the rat in half a minute. This is civilized. The next morning as we leave the 7-Eleven, leave the sticks and bushes for the smoother ground of the city streets, Wolf's gait keeps changing its mind. One step, he's got a bad right leg, the next a bad back, and on the third, his back and right leg are fine, but he's got a weak left knee that won't quit. Fast, slow, eager, reluctant, he does a kind of slump-straggle stutter step. Khaki has torn below his knee, flapping against his calf. He's about 5'7", I guess, with a kind of body that never weighed more than 110. He's already doubled over under the weight of his canvas sack. I'll take that, I say politely. Would you? He thrusts it on me. I take the sack, not so heavy, yet. Bad back, he says, to seal my fate. We walk slowly on, 
The central city si slips silently, gradually by us, and finally it sinks into Wolf that we are leaving his town. My parents were here, both of them, he says. They were old people, you know, very old people. I was their youngest. They just wouldn't leave, and they had some warning. Warning? We didn't get any warning. It wasn't from the TV or like that, just a kind of intuition my mother got. Oh, she was always predicting things. She'd get this look. No matter what she was doing, she'd always have to go lie down. The look, and then we'd all come around the bed primed for the last words. And she'd say, very weak, her hand kind of up and kind of shaky, say like, something bad is going to happen. And the thing is, nothing ever did. <laughs> what? I'm fully awake. Not to any of us. And next morning, Mom would be at the breakfast table with a newspaper. There, she'd say, man kills four children self. Now here, look at that. That's certainly a terrible thing now. He chuckles. Good game she was running, like betting on every horse in the field for the price of one. See, whether a train went off the rails in Saskatchewan or the milkman's kid got the mumps, Mama had it covered, automatically. He snorts. The fabulous gift of prophecy. When she had a headache, Dad used to say, Not tonight, dear, I have an intuition. <laughs> right before this shit came down, Wolf's arm swings a wide arc. Mama had one of her famous intuitions. The look, the bed, the prophecy. Well, we all had too much respect to laugh outright, but I looked to Dad to see if maybe he was sneaking a little smile on the sly. But he comes up to me and grabs my arm and says, I feel it too. You understand now this never happened. I look at him to see maybe he's playing a joke, but no, just, I feel it too, son. See, when he called me son, it was serious. And then he reached into his pocket and gave me the car keys, and I knew he was serious. Ever since I cracked up his Buick when I was 14, he never so much as let me wash his cars. Old man held a grudge for 38 years. And here he's standing in front of me. Now get out of here right away, son. Something is going to happen. And I was backing out the room. I was talking, asking them to come, and they weren't answering, just in their own world, waiting for it. The sight of them sitting together on the bed finally scared me. I went running. That was it, man. That was it. I lead Dazed Wolf down a bank onto the shoulder in dead Interstate Highway 81. I think of the old West Side Highway when it was still standing, but off limits to cars. It was a park, really, a desolate strip. You'd look down four lanes and see nobody for a mile. But off to the side, not 50 feet away, was the Wall Street rush hour smash-up. I think of Wolf's parents. Jesus, they knew. I want to tell you, not only them. I was out here on I-81. It was weird enough being behind the wheel of Dad's olds. The seat didn't quite fit me and the mirrors were off. And I was on the highway at night driving out, out like a maniac. Maybe 90, 95. I was weaving through other cars like they were standing still. I, Wolf thumbs his chest, was a menace. I laugh, but he isn't smiling. And you know what I saw? Out of every five or six cars going normal speed, there was always one guy like me, skidding around turns, hunched down low over the wheel. I passed a guy in an old VW bug. He was only going maybe 70, but he felt it. And the further I got, the more of them there were, until at the end it was maybe half the cars were just 55ing along. And the other half were madmen, feet clamped to the floorboards, steering only, not slowing down, running like the world was a video game and their quarter was about to run out. From horizon to horizon, Max and Wolf walk and walk along, along before and beside a hill, a clump of trees, a town of cold ash, along beside and on top of a whole intact and upended tanker, back wheels in the air over the road, front end in a ditch beside it, evidence of a fire, an oil spill, a mole in the light skin of the earth, alongside and on top, climbing like, toy, like kids on a toy train in a park, except that these kids are grown, and this toy train is a dark blue oil tanker. 
And in this unmarked oil tanker are two skeleton drivers. And on that steering wheel, two hands still hold fast, one bones, one flesh. And then only the hills here, only the towns watch, alongside and past. And the side of the earth with Max and Wolf on it, stick men, slow ants, spins into the dark. And six nights out of Harrisburg, Wolf stands squinting at me. Know what you look like with that piece of metal dangling from your neck? Like something out of a corny western, the sheriff with his six-gun. John Wayne, Wyatt Earp, blowing for the lost world. I mean, why couldn't you play some more humble instrument, the ocarina, the ukulele? No, it has to be the saxophone. See, now, playing the saxophone and playing it so well, the way I look at it, like they used to say on TV, you are a man with a mission. And that mission, he declaims, should you choose to accept it, is to make people happy. To make people happy, I repeat. Beginning with me, Wolf crosses his arms decisively and sits down in the middle of Interstate Highway 81. Play strangers in the night. Thank you. Thank you, new writers. Thank you, Penn members, for introducing them to us. Thank you all for listening. Thank you again to Endicott. And won't everybody please repair to the front of the shop and have a glass of wine? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Pamela.